Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you have myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Robin Conroy. Welcome back to the show. Hello, everybody. I'm very happy to be back. <laughs> Lovely to have you here. And I tend to bring Robin on for a lot of my like film <laughs> episodes or, you know, maybe maybe less the literary ones. I know you do a lot of reading, but I, I you're kind of my go to for, for film on this occasion. I think it's maybe the first one that we're talking about that isn't about animation, given that you're yes. an animator. So, yeah, so anima- animator by trade, but like film aficionado by by choice. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yep, that's yeah. a, that sounds yeah, about right. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of film studies in that course as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it always feels really fitting to bring you on for these kinds of episodes. It's nice having done some more kind of intense literary episodes. I think it's good to have a slightly more lighthearted one. And so we want to talk about uh, one of our favourite TV shows, which is Stranger Things. <laughs> Um, I love Stranger Things (laughs) and I think I always think of it around this time of year to me especially the first season feels quite autumnal or or wintry just those like long dark evenings coming in even though we're recording this on what must be like the summeriest day of autumn I know it is such a warm September I'm like in short sleeves yeah Um, Phoebe was looking at the uh, window before she left today and she was like Rachel do I need sunscreen (laughs) um so it's it may be a little bit summary, but we're kind of coming into the autumn mentality. And I think it's a perfect time to bring up something like Stranger Things, which is one of those kind of, in many ways, and we're going to be talking about that iconic, it, it plays a lot on those like tropes and those those expectations of Halloween-y or autumnal kind of scary atmospheric kind of settings. And so... Um, yeah, I think maybe I should just begin with a little bit of, uh, I know a lot of people have seen Stranger Things, but there will also be others who haven't. And so just to give a kind of grounding in what we're talking about, I'm going to do a basic setup for the plot. Um, as me and Robin were talking about this before, we were recording, I, yeah, we're, I, I'd say expect spoilers. I don't think that I'm going to go out of my way to give spoilers, but... Um, it's definitely, if you really don't want to know what happens in the story, we're just going to be talking about it as if you know what's happening in the story. So just a heads up on that. I think specifically in terms of if you care about like thematic spoilers, because I think that's going to be a lot of what we're kind of drawing from. So yeah, I think that's, that's spot on. So Stranger Things is uh, one of those big blockbuster Netflix series. Uh, it centers mainly on a, a group of friends, four friends, Mike, Will, Dustin and Lucas, who it opens with them playing D&D. They're, it's this classic 80s, I think it begins in 1983, classic 80s setting. Um, I mean, from the off, you get a lot of instant recognition with things like Stephen King and E.T. Like the like the whole vibe is very much well set even within the first minute of the of the series. And the plot kind of centers around the four boys are playing D&D and as they're cycling home, Will is cycling and home and goes missing. And that's the sort of trigger point for the plot. And what 
the first season at least kind of centers around is looking for Will and he's gone missing. And so the remaining three friends go to look for him. And while they're looking for him, they encounter a girl. They, they don't find Will, but they find a girl who's sort of wandering around the woods, fairly shell-shocked, can't really speak. They're the same age, but she's clearly not normal. Um, and what is re- kind of revealed relatively early on is that she's a sort of medical experiment that can use telekinesis and a certain form of telepathy and is altered in a sort of supernatural way. So she becomes a huge part of the story, but the hunt for Will is still on and you have kind of the three different generations all interacting with this story. So you have the the kids, like I said, who are conducting their own research. They're trying to find Will. They're trying to get things going themselves. You have the adults, uh, most of whom are fairly ineffectual, but you have a couple of very important adults, mainly Will's mother, Joyce, and the the chief of police, um, Hopper, who... The two of them are kind of the main adult driving forces in in trying to find out what's happening. And then at the same time, you also have the teenage older siblings. You have Will's older brother, Jonathan, who's obviously looking for Will. You also have Mike's older sister, Nancy, who is looking for her friend, Barb, who actually goes missing as well, and her boyfriend, Steve. And so you have these kind of three strata of different ages all engaging in this mystery. And I think for me, at least, it, it that kind of intergenerational, sometimes they're on their own, sometimes they're interacting with each other, but like seeing the, the three different ages all on this kind of adventure to in some ways together is really appealing about it. Absolutely. Like, I feel like that's one of the things that is such a big draw is that you're really seeing, I guess, each of these generations in the context of the 80s in which they're placed but also just like in the context of family and friendship and and conflict and how um how their age kind of informs the way that they interact with this kind of otherworldliness and strangeness that they're coming across um absolutely and then what this the series kind of centers on going forward is the fact that they uncover uh, that there is a government experiment, um, which is tied to what's going on with the the young girl who's called Eleven, and she. So it, it, she's she's a part of that, but she's not the only part of that. Which is that they've also sort of torn a rip in the fabric of reality, which has both allowed access to a sort of disgusting, murky shadow world version of our world, which is called the Upside Down. But almost probably more importantly, it also lets out sort of demonic forces that are living within this upside down who then attack various people within the community and, and drag them to the upside down and so the the main kind of conflict of the story is in both kind of grappling with this supernatural reality and also you know trying to look at least in the first season look for will and, and re-establish the the kind of equilibrium that they they had before i think um quite Notably, Hopper mentions that the worst thing that's happened in the town before Will has gone missing is that an owl flew into a woman's head because it thought it was a nest. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. And And I think that's important as well. This isn't actually 
Because I think a lot of 80s referential pop culture stuff is centered on like almost city living or maybe suburban living. And this is very suburban, but it's almost suburban slash rural. This is a very small town. It's called Hawkins, Indiana. And uh, it's it's small town. And I think there's a lot of appeal in that kind of close community, the freedom of kids to go off and have these adventures, the kind of latchkey setup that's that's within these communities. Like you said, it's so unexpected to have something crazy happening because this is somewhere where nothing ever happens. And, you yeah. know, those kind of great coming of age tropes um, in, in that way. And yeah, I think it's a great story. I think we reference it a little bit, but it really centers on the characters and the fact that especially for Christians and Catholics watching it, to me at least, is really centered around virtue and and people being virtuous and friendship and sacrifice and loyalty and doing the right thing. And how sin kind of is so difficult to get around and um, the value of truth and honesty is really like central to to us. Um, And yeah, owning up to sin as well i think it's a big big theme that comes back of like people actually uh living up to their actions and kind of moving forward and and repenting for things that they have failed in you know yeah and i think it also flags a lot of the dangers of both that society and going on into our modern society of for everything from government dismissal of the value of human life and the sort of destruction reckless destruction of the natural goods in the world all the way to the sort of consumerism and lack of community within families i think there's a real there's a trend of like absent fathers and broken families um not in a I, i think there's a lot of very modern um TV and and storytelling that centers around broken families in a in a really kind of crushingly depressing way. Yeah, I, I don't think it's that, but I think it's just sort of woven in the it, like it's there in the background to see that this is this is the the backdrop of what's happening. It's I I know one of the articles we were reading on this was pointing out it happens in sort of the the divorce boom of of the eighties as well, and and that sense of yeah. the breakdown of of family communities. And there's a real kind of absence of father figures or like a, a a failure of the father figures who are present who who may as well be <laughs> absent in many many places yeah um, yeah notably um is it uh mike's father who kind of like Ted. perpetually seems to be in a um in a lounge chair kind of dozing in front of the tv and that's Absolutely. kind of like his, his whole role in the plot <laughs> yeah i think yeah it, it's it's the that kind of uh interesting so and, and like i think Mike's sister Nancy in particular is really aware of this as like a a sort of dead end way of living and and she kind of reacts in the sort of teenager like typical rebellion kind of way but I think she is recognizing the soullessness of of this economic dream of the of the 80s at the time yeah there's a real sense that their family have a kind of veneer of perfectness um and you know you know, they're monetarily comfortable, but there's a kind of an emptiness at the center of kind of that relationship. Whereas when you look at the buyer's family, which are 
much more rough and ready and more than... openly dysfunctional like his father yes. has openly left and has a girlfriend and isn't interested like i think that's it, broken in a really visual way that's obvious for the community to see yeah absolutely. and yet there's a lot more love and a lot more compassion and like fight for your family yes yeah absolutely um, which i think is very very central to the, the show as well as the kind of sense of like a dark underbelly or like a, 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 an alternate side to what is everything that you're seeing in a way that like the upside down is sort of like a, a very blatant visual representation of the sense that there is one vision that's very beautiful and another like version of what's happening that's quite um dark you know yeah and rotting like that that yeah. idea of like hidden rot uh, yes. Which I think, especially in season two, is like a really used visual of like it causes crops to rot. But I think for the episode, we're not just going to talk about why we like Stranger Things. <laughs> we could do that all day. <laughs> we could do that all day. Um, but, you know, in every episode of Risky Enchantment, I do try to take an angle for something that helps us to assess our faith and also how our faith interacts with the world and I think what we came up with for Stranger Things was less to do with and is it less to do with the show itself although we are we're definitely going to weave in the themes of the show into this and more to do with the fact that it is part as much as we like it it is part of a real almost um relentless craze for nostalgia at the moment um and you know i'll throw my hands up and say i'm i'm definitely part of that like i'm really partial to a lot of 80s pop culture not not all of it i'm gonna say um and some some of it would be very relevant for here i don't know a lot of stephen king which is a a a really obvious reference point for stranger things or even some of the spielberg stuff that it references like i i don't know everything but i do love that that kind of the era I feel like to me at least it has a real sense of optimism and earnestness in the pop music and in like the teenage coming of age films like I I really enjoy that Um, and there's lots of things that I definitely feel nostalgic about or or buy into that kind of nostalgia market Uh, I know a lot of people would call me a massive hipster. It's really hard to deny that accusation when I've got like a vinyl record player sitting right beside me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But that as much as I love that about Stranger Things, and I think we're going to, again, later come back and say it's not just sort of vacuous nostalgia, that it is doing something a little bit more meaningful or a little bit more creative than that, but that there is we have to reckon with the fact that nostalgia is this sort of all-encompassing craze at the moment and what that means for Christians especially who were who have to remember that they were they were made for such a time as this and what does it mean to be overly nostalgic yeah I mean so I guess I'll kind of jump in here and say that like so there's a kind of an idea in film kind of theory or like I guess mass media kind of a a theory around that there's sort of a 30-year cycle that works with how we become nostalgic for things um in that there's sort of a sense that we are nostalgic for the things that we experienced in childhood or the the era that we kind of just missed because 
obviously we see with kind of like the the kids and stranger things that they're they are immersed in the culture that they're in but they're also kind of looking up to the things that they're not able to do or the freedoms that they don't have that they kind of see they're kind of teenage counterparts able to partake in and that's kind of like a constant tension of them wanting to to push further and trying to to do more things and kind of being well very unsuccessfully reined in most of the time but um so there is this kind of sense that with that kind of pop culture resurgences we see it's generally the people who grew up as as kids in an era um kind of looking back on what they saw as like their halcyon days of like what was truly beautiful and so that's kind of why we see now with like the kind of zoomer 90s culture revival it like that's the generation kind of just behind us and they're glorifying the 90s as an era that they kind of only just like saw in their babyhood you know and in that kind of vein it's no surprise to me that like people like spielberg or george lucas who directed wrote and directed the star wars films that um that both of them have a real love of 1950s Norman Rockwell paintings, which would have been just the era before when they were kids. And there's a sense of this sort of cyclical nature that like, so they, those are the 80s films that inspire Stranger Things. But I think like Spielberg said himself that like, in terms of Rockwell's illustrations, which are, you know, the epitome of American 1950s culture, like he said about them, they pushed a benign but important agenda of a kind of community, of a kind of civic responsibility to patriotic duties, to understanding our nation by understanding our neighbour. And he did this in one frame, in one image. And it's interesting because Spielberg himself actually came from quite a poor background. And so, like, he said of himself that, like, he was living on a street where he was the only his family were the only people who didn't have Christmas lights up at Christmas, like they only had the porch light on. And so there's a sense in which when he's looking at Rockwell's images of the 1950s that he grew up in, he's kind of seeing a kind of beautiful, idealized, fantasized version of his own childhood. Mm. Um, And then with the Duffer Brothers, Stranger Things, we're kind of seeing them in turn kind of looking at what was kind of shiny and beautiful and in many ways about the 1980s that may not be fully uh, encapsulating what the reality was though it is i will say that it is though it is an optimistic vision we certainly do see it's not a completely perfected vision but we definitely see say in season three like a version of the american mall of the 1980s as as something sort of very idyllic and and almost like (laughs) temple-like in the way that it's sort of depicted a lot of 1980s american culture really sort of glorified yeah i do think i i I think you have some points about the sort of commercialization of especially that season three which is centered on the mall but i do think that like they take it to a point that is like satire in that yes it's so clearly like like (laughs) the the dream girls flipping their hair (laughs) The, the sort of commercial dream that's been sold to people at that time of the yeah. mall as this like great human achievement. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, we kind of know that it's going to collapse within 20, 30 years that, you know, now malls are, are almost a thing of the past, which is something I think we'll, we'll come back to. But I think it's really interesting what you're talking about. And I when preparing for this episode, I was returning to a book which I referenced quite a bit in a episode about a year ago where I was talking with the author Fiorella de Maria. The book is called The Past is a Foreign Country and it's just a really interesting, like it's actually an academic text, but it takes a look at the ways that we 
approach the past. And actually, I think it might be in one of the sections that has been added since it was first released. Um, I think it was first released actually in the 80s and then was re-released, I've just checked now, is in 2015 with like a whole section updated. But that this kind of leaning on nostalgia as a sort of growing phenomenon and that actually the 80s I'd be interested to read more about it because it says it it has a quote which says the 80s is sort of a founding decade for this. But there is always something like the the gothic revival of the Victorian era is decidedly nostalgic (laughs) or the the kind of classical focus during the Renaissance of like going back to the, the classic era, things like that. But in some ways, I guess, like you're saying this like 30 year cycle, it's like getting more and more microcosmic instead of being in the 1880s and 1890s looking back to the gothic medieval era it's suddenly becoming smaller and smaller intervals of what you're looking back on you know yeah exactly and I guess that's kind of a sense in which like there's this almost like decadent setting in of kind of a desperate need to rehash and reiterate and and relive the beautiful moments but the beautiful moments are getting closer and closer together yeah Yeah. Um, to to the point where it's now like people who were living through it are still young enough to be like not rosy-eyed about it and being like no it, it wasn't like that at all um, yeah. and so I, I have a quote or two from the past's foreign country which says nostalgia is today's favorite mode of looking back it saturates the press serves as advertising bait merits soci- sociological study and expresses modern malaise and I think that's a really good point to re- remind ourselves that um Nostalgia is not the only way of interacting with the past. I think people just assume that that's how we interact with the past, but it isn't actually. And weirdly, like you think of, I think it was in the 60s and 70s more that there was a sort of impatience with nostalgia that like you should be looking to the future and and, like happy about, you you know, you should be embracing the future as opposed to obsessed with the past. And I think, especially as Catholics, I think we would be a little bit more wary of that approach. Or the sort I think, of I think there's sort of like there's a middle ground in that like I feel like often the eras that are more kind of prone to be glorified are the kind of more I guess sedentary or like less um mm. you know so like the 60s and 70s were very fraught and then we see eras like the 1950s and the 1980s where from a personal kind of household point of view it's actually an area like a a period of like more relative peace um Mm -hmm. and simplicity and i guess there is there is also a danger in like nostalgizing to the point where you kind of you see a bygone era as as a sort of a utopia or a perfected time and kind of miss the 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 flaws that are present in every age but then also, yes, there is the, the, the flip side, which is kind of a, a fixatedness on the future that kind of like misses what's happening now as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, as, as, as is almost always the case, you know, it is about finding some kind of path where there's a balance between the two and that, you know, nostalgia has a place, but it can't be the only way that we interact with the past and that you can love and cherish and be interested in the things of any era of the past without falling into nostalgia that you yes. you can balance it out with a healthy healthy dose of realism with a healthy dose of like scholarly appreciation or or seeing yourself as still part of that 
that continuity rather than it being like a glass box thing that you can't actually access anymore, you know? And I think it's really interesting. One of the quotes from this book, it's so depressing to think that this was, and it's always the case of like, oh, when I was young, people were more polite, says Plato, you know, and it's like <laughs> uh, one of those things of like, oh, it was uh, it, it was ever thus. But it is kind of amazing to see someone at the it's uh, at the new millennium's eve, a critic moaned that America has no now. Our culture is composed of sequels, reruns, remakes, revivals, reissues, recreations, reenchantments, adaptations, anniversaries, memorabilia, oldies radio and nostalgia records collections this is echoed in the 1980s the founding decade of replay recycle recall retrieve reprocess rerun from more creative times but i think what's interesting is the way that even within the 20 years since that was said that we now have more and more ways of accessing that with the digital world and the on the onset of social media uh, again a bit later this book says, once the sol- solace or menace of the few, nostalgia now attracts and afflicts all. And I think that's a really interesting point that it used to be not something so universal. I think we all have uh, have kind of accepted nostalgia as a very normal thing in society. And it, that's not actually true. But yeah, so that it attracts and afflicts all. Myriad ancestor hunters scour archives, millions throng to historic houses, antiques engross the hoi polloi, every childhood past is souvenired. Reversing earlier ill repute, nostalgia is promoted as therapeutic, an aid to self-esteem, a crutch for personal continuity, a defence against reminders of mortality. It's it's interesting, and I think when we think of like even things like 23andMe and those like plugging in to see your ancestors and and like finding out more about your family history. And again, each of these things can be good in and of themselves. It's never the case that you just point to one thing and say, we should stop doing this. But that there is an aggressive kind of obsession with how the past was better now, I think. And I think it sort of speaks to our discomfort with the present. But that that doesn't necessarily mean that nostalgia is the remedy to that. I think also just on like a a technical point of view as well, like there was more more homogeneity of of forms in which media could come to us in the eighties as mm-hmm. well. You know, yeah. like there is a kind of a uh, a splintering that we're seeing in this era in terms of of cultural differences of of where people place themselves in camps, and in a way, one way that we can kind of all unite is actually in looking back to like previous media where there was a more kind of like unanimous interaction with the the few tv shows that were present as opposed to the the vast number of streaming sites that we now have access to you know yeah Um, and i think something like stranger things is one of the few examples of a large quantity of viewers all consuming the same thing yeah i will say that my pretty much my main reason for getting netflix was to watch stranger things (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah well it's it's that's their plan i think yeah exactly and that i think that's really really true in that sense of like cultural unity and, and the only way to access that is then by going into a time when you could have referential things like you said that there's a there's a smaller amount of of content i think i was really struck recently by the fact that there's a real glut of pop music at the moment which is really explicit 
about longing for the 90s and I know we've yeah. we've said this but I just think it's so funny that we have like um there was one by uh, an artist called Charlie XCX called 1999 when and I think the course to that is like I just want to go back back to 1999 or there's another one by a singer Anne Marie called 2002 and the course of that is just a mashup of like lines from the greatest hits of like the late 90s <laughs> well, yeah. and then and this goes into something that we're going to touch on a little bit later of like the the digital age and how difficult it is to navigate the di- digital age and why it makes nostalgia make sense but there's one by Phineas who's the older brother of Billie Eilish I, I I'm I know for a fact there will be people listening to this podcast who won't know any of the names that I've just said now <laughs> and I'm sorry but they they are the, the the big names of pop music at the moment you know this is a song I really like but he he is a song called the 90s and it begins with sometimes I think about the 90s I know everyone romanticized it but you could sign me up for a world without the internet whereas those other examples were just like blatant nostalgia and like just sort of kind of in a fun way but like clearly just self-indulgent nostalgia certainly the last example with Phineas is a lot more about that feeling of stagnation and not reaching your potential and trying to look back on a time when you felt like the world was kind of open to you and I think that's really present in Stranger Things as well in that kids are they're, they're interacting with each other with a huge amount of kind of joy and Uh, enthusiasm one of the first shots that we see in the first episode is just like a bunch of boys around a D&D table just like so much enjoying the experience this tactile experience of interacting with this board and each other their communication and their relationships with each other are really tender and and there's something very yeah I don't know tangible and and the running around on their on their bikes across the town and stuff like that there's something very tactile about their interactions with the world um, that are really joyful to just view and experience um yeah i think so and i think that's something we want to maybe dive into a little bit further but i just think to, to kind of close out on the nostalgia i just think we should maybe pull that into into a slightly more specifically Catholic perspective. And it's not just to note that this thing is happening, uh, but also to see how it feeds into our faith. And I think I think it's really important because as someone who does, I you know, I, I'm a medievalist. I love history. I love old buildings. I get frustrated with the, the way that we construct our streets, our buildings, our world. Like, and, you know, it's very easy to take that, reflection of the past and then sort of transpose onto that a real feeling of um, like perfection of rose tinted glasses that everything was fine and nothing was was wrong at those times and I think that's a really alluring trap to fall into with our faith as well I, I I'm very aware of, of of the kind of different struggles that are going on in the church about what does tradition look like and what does carrying on the older rites or older expressions of the faith and and wanting to to not just reenact them but bring them back into life and with them to you know revive the faith as well like I think a lot of it comes from a desire to see a more um, lively faith and it's not just about wanting to kind of enact the past or or imagine yourself in the past but that we still need to have that balance and those clear-sighted glasses that there is no utopia. There was no time when something was perfect. And mm. 
it was interesting that I saw a quote. I don't know whether it was recent or whether it just sort of resurfaced on Twitter this week of um, Pope Francis saying something about nostalgia is going to is kind of killing the church. And I know a lot of people took that really negatively and, and I can understand why, but um, saying that like making the case for tradition or making the case for the, the Catholic continuity and, and heritage and the wealth of genius that went went into the the art and and the expression of the faith in the past but i think the thing to really focus in on is is that word nostalgia that like um, and i i certainly won't pretend to, to speak for the pope or or know exactly what his intention was with that but i think for ourselves it's important to keep that frame of mind that nostalgia isn't the only way to interact with the past and that there is almost an like an element of negativity it like nostalgia might be a bad thing and if it is a good thing it's still a qualified good thing that we need to make sure that we're not being blind blinded by what we love about the past to fail to engage with what about the past brought us to here <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah i actually i have a quote from henry Nouwen. um it's from the 80s mm-hmm. uh, i'd love to do like a, a count on how many times you say the words 80s and nostalgia at the end. <laughs> um, uh, I just thought it really for me kind of highlighted that that fine line of I guess embracing tradition and embracing the beauty of the past in a way that informs our present and and informs how we see the world now as opposed to sitting in it and kind of um marinating in something and 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 not letting it inform our day-to-day lives um and so he's talking about the experience of having done a kind of a sabbatical in um a um monastery um and he's kind of just talking on his experience of having been there um and feeling like he hasn't he hasn't had the full transformation that he had hoped that it would kind of like be a before and after of his life and yet it's still kind of he has this fond memory of it as something very beautiful and pure in its experience. Um, And so he says, why did I go at all? Because there was an inner must to which I received a positive response. Why did I stay? Because I knew I was at the right place and nobody told me otherwise. Why was I there? I don't fully know yet. Probably I will not know fully before the end of the cycle of my life. Still, I can say that I have a most precious memory which keeps unfolding itself in all that I do or plan to do. I no longer can live without being reminded of the glimpse of God's graciousness that I saw in my solitude, of the ray of light that broke through my darkness, of the gentle voice that spoke in my silence, and of the soft breeze that touched me in my stillest hour. This memory, however, does more than bring to mind rich experiences of the past. It also continues to offer new perspectives on present events and guides in decisions for the years to come. In the midst of my ongoing compulsions, illusions and unrealities, this memory will always be there to dispel false dreams and point in right directions. When Peter, James and John saw the Lord in his splendour on Mount Tabor, they were heavy with sleep. But the memory of this event proved a source of hope in the midst of their later hardships. And I think that's kind of like a way in which we can see a vision of looking at at the goodness of our of 
past eras and kind of using it to inform how we live our lives now but not letting it make us stagnate um yeah i love that i think it is really right and good for catholics to love our heritage like we have such an incredible heritage everything from the saints to the artists to the political workers or people working for social change like Mm. we have a wonderful history but we also have a dark history there is the upside down you know (laughs) Um, or even just you know to point out that the good times also had an undercurrents that brought us to where we are now and so if everything was perfect at one point in the church you know why 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 did it change um yeah. and and that change often comes from a lack of attention in a particular area or or a way that people were struggling or underfed or undernourished or um failing to encounter Christ in the way that they should and so you know i just think that it is really good for us to want to see the the church's history as a continuous thing as something we're still present in as something that doesn't just sort of shed its leaves as it goes along but like you said that it can't I think we can feel trapped when the modern world fails to live up to our idealized version of the past and and also fail to see the ways that each age has its own unique calling that line from Esther that I said already that like you were made for such a time as this and so to want to live in the past is to reject what God offered you in bringing you in at this specific time. Yes, exactly. I think that and that everything has to be rooted in Christ, you know, nothing, no time. If it's not, you know, if we're not living it for Christ and living it through Christ, there is no time in which things will be good. And, um, you know, that's that's kind of that's the centrality that everything has to come through and that is kind of present in in all of our kind of temporal experience and you know i've met people who are just as sort of adamant about their attachment to their 1960s hymnal as i've met people who are attached to their gregorian chant you know that like it can we we have to assess ourselves from all sides of like what are the terms on which we're willing to accept the church and Christ that like it says, well, I, I will only have, I will only have my mass if I'm allowed to sing, he will li- lift me up on eagle's wings, you know, <laughs> like, it, it sounds ridiculous, but, and I'm not trying to be flippant about liturgy because I know it is such a, a, an important part of, of our Catholic experience, but I, I just want to delineate between engaging with the past and continuing on traditions and distinguishing that from nostalgia and that those two things are separate and we should treat them as separate things yes absolutely um and yeah but that like there is that sense of drawing on the good things from the past and i think that will maybe bring us to our kind of our next point which is that in stranger things yes there's a whole heap of nostalgia and yes they know how to push every (laughs) single one of those buttons but that I, at least for myself, I think they're doing something which is a little bit more interesting and more creative than that. And they're using a particular era to evoke a particular set of values and even atmosphere that make telling that kind of story possible. Yeah. Um, because to me, at least in a particular genre, there are there are also always exceptions to this. You know, you've always got 
like music subcultures like punk going on or you know you you, you don't just have one set of uh, perspective or one set of attitudes at, at a given time but it is true to say that there is a sort of core center to a lot of pop culture from the 80s which has this like you said this sort of exuberance and this um bigness and earnestness to this um yeah. and i think Even the hair is big. <laughs> the hair the shoulder pads everything's big yeah the colors um yeah. and i think that to me that allows you to tell a particular type of story i i'm gonna i it's it's kind of interesting that in talking about stranger things i i find that i can't stop talking about pop music in in the same breath but (laughs) you know robin and i are also huge fans of a band called bleachers which really reinvigorates a kind of 80s musical style or and it's definitely not just aping the past and um, the the front man for Jack Antonoff does a really good job of, of not just recreating sort of a, a bygone era of music but actually making something new and again he he's doing the same thing which is trying to use an era that had a particular perspective to get across a particular set of ideas and because I have a quote from from Jack Antonoff here that says that it in describing the music of of bleachers he's and and it's sort of 80s styling he said to me the 80s were epic and sincere music was large and grand and unapologetic and i spent hours looking for an interview that i'm sure i saw but i can't, I can't verify <laughs> this but i remember listening to an interview with him where he said that to him the 80s were a time when the the sad or the meaningful or the important songs were also the songs that had a big sound and i think now we really associate sincerity with like strip back you know you'll often find an artist releases of like their single and then they re- release a version of it that is just them on piano or just them on guitar and you know there's no problem with that i i like that just as much as anyone but you'll see a lot of comments underneath it being like oh this sounds more real to me this sounds yeah, more this raw yeah <laughs> <laughs> this is the more sincere version you know yeah we really associate that feeling of like stripping it back as sincere and I think what is trying to happen in bleachers is that sense of like well actually no we can have a big epic thing and it can even be fun and pop and make you want to dance and also have a, a deep emotional sense to it or even a deep uh, virtue it to it true you know mm-hmm. um, there can be a truth um present in that you know yeah um, and to me, it kind of speaks to the fact that Stranger Things almost works like a fairy tale. Um, to, it's got a real sense of like happy endings and cliches and even that sense of like it's very referential with its pop culture. Like, you know, there'll be a Ghostbusters reference or even a Lord of the Rings reference or, you know, it'll. there's a lot of things that modern audiences would be like, oh, I know what that is, you know, um, but to me, it almost works like fairy tale tropes. Like if a if an old woman shows up in a fairy tale, or if a frog talks to you in a fairy tale, like there's kind of a set of expectations in those narratives, or references, or motifs that you can kind of pick out over and over again. And so within this space, I think that sort of that particular viewpoint of the '80s allows you to tell these stories, which are are cliched in in a good way because they're speaking to a sort of optimistic or hopeful vision of of the world. And 
Stranger Things is very secular. Like, I don't think there's a single church in Hawkins. I don't know any any reference to religion at all, at all in it. Um, and yet there's still a redemptive story within it of, of self-sacrifice and of virtue. And it reminds me a lot of that Tolkien quote of the eucatastrophe that, like, enjoy being at the center of it. I have it here. I know I've quoted it before, but I'll quote it again. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. This joy, which is one of the things that which fairy tales can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. In its fairy tale or other world setting, it is sudden and miraculous grace, never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of a discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibility of these things is necessary to the joy of deliverance. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat, and insofar is evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. And I think that's really interesting to me because I think, again, it's always good to to give the other point and say that there's also an important place for stories which are very broken and do explore the brokenness of humanity in a more cynical or dark or um, troubled way. But that I think Stranger Things does a really good job of presenting evil, first of all, in a, in a very straightforward good versus evil way, also evil in the sense of like, like we kind of said, governmental evil, family breakdown evil as triggers for genuine bad things in the world. They're not just meaningless background. They, they do contribute, but ultimately that they feed into this world, which is a fairy tale in that, like, like Tolkien said, that it has this joy and that it's 80 setting allows you to explore that with the expectation of that yeah absolutely and i think i will say that there are like there is real sadness in seeing some of the brokenness in the families um and you know we are in a way still still waiting for like a a really like straight good father figure Mm -hmm. Uh, i think every like i think joyce has to be one of the kind of like iconically amazing mothers in like media now but um yeah there are ways in which kind of there is the the disappointment of of reality present but yeah like you said that there i guess in a lot of a lot of the kind of tv that we see now particularly maybe not so much in cinema with kind of the the superhero genre um, which is very optimistic and hopeful, but a lot of the kind of TV that we see it now is just, it's very dark to the point of kind of like despair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just showing it a, a reality, but it's actually kind of speaking to a reality where there is no hope at the end of the day. Um, mm-hmm. And so it is refreshing to see something that's kind of so, so present um, in pop culture that does that does have a whilst difficult ultimately kind of hopeful vision of humanity and of the kind of goodness of people to kind of overcome their mistakes and um and grow and move forward yeah and Um, to to just earnestly like things i think it really it really draws a very kind of earnest 
enjoyment out of you. I have a quote here, which is from an article, which is about a professor explaining why we like um, Stranger Things. And he was he was meditating on this line that was actually from an Umberto Eco essay, which says, two cliches make us laugh, 100 cliches moves us. And he says, if, if you just use one, then it feels contrived. But if you do all of them together, it becomes a masterpiece of referentiality. These are tried and true techniques that resonate with people. And if you find a way to weave them all together and do a cohesive plot line, then it just wins you over. And that's exactly what it did to me because there were so many of them that the Duffer brothers used. I just let my defenses down and I just really enjoyed it, you know? <laughs> and I think that's, it's a nice thing to see that like that we can still produce stories that understand this kind of, interestingly, this heritage of storytelling that we've had from all time and bring it into a more modern context but using like I don't think to me I don't think that story would work in a more modern setting or even in a less in, in an era that was more cynical or more um, afraid that there's a sense of like the fearlessness or the the optimism of the era that allows that story to work and and I guess the the freedom of a world that's kind of devoid of screens as well yeah. to a large extent you know like you said before um that like myst mystery in order to have mystery you kind of have to not have digital devices to a certain extent mm -hmm. and like certainly in this world you you do like the fact that you can't just call somebody the kids don't have phones um and so when somebody goes on a bike ride and you they don't you know they go missing and there's no there's no easy way to track them there's not the same kind of like cctv devices in place you know there's just there's just not the same sort of digital trail following people um and so and also people are not connected to the digital devices themselves in such a way as that they go out and they explore the world and when strange things happen the kids want to go out into the woods and kind of figure it out for themselves which I guess is maybe less believable, sadly, in our kind of the, the year that we live in now, um, where there isn't the same sort of joy of exploring um, the world in children as as there was maybe in that that era with the kind of freedom. And obviously, the the counterbalance to that is that things do go wrong, and and you know in the eighties there was a, a big crisis of uh, and fear around children going missing. Mm. Um, and so yeah there is there is a safety but also uh i guess a loss of freedom that comes with our social interactions being so so digitized yeah yeah i've got a quote from the duffer brothers who are the creators of the show like we said um but they said for us we like going back to a time and i'm sure nostalgia is feeding into that We've got all of our keywords here. <laughs> and I'm sure nostalgia is feeding into that, where cell phones and the internet weren't around. If you went off with your friends, it felt like you really could get lost on a grand adventure. And I think you're right. There were some excellent articles about this which talk about how I think the Duffer Brothers do a good job of highlighting that this sort of latchkey parenting wasn't the, the pinnacle of parenting <laughs> at the same time. And yet that... There, there's there's something that we now miss w with helicopter parenting of like the the constrainedness or the 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 moving on to the digital realm which presents its own 
scary elements to it. I know we were listening to an old Fountains of Carrots podcast episode where they were talking about maybe the the upside down being a sort of vision of the internet of this like thing that can suck you in and 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 hollow you out. Yeah, um, its own its own sort of traumatic alternate version of the world, you know, um, yeah. where everything's a little bit distorted and strange and not the way that it is when we're actually face to face. Yeah. Um, I have a, an article here, which is called The Strangeness of Stranger Things, which says the Stranger Things leans heavily on its 80s milieu, the kids on bicycles, the painstaking attention to the period set design, the dated hairstyles and the 10 hour Dungeons and Dragons sessions are all there. The show slyly cultivates a sense of loss about those things. We have traded the imaginative social experience of D&D for passive screen time in which the game does the imagining for you. We are also drawn to the unencumbered freedom the children have tearing around the town of Hawkins and to the preteen friendly space the boys set up in the basement of the Wheeler's house. There they can exercise a limited sovereignty appropriate to children on the cusp of adolescence without constant adult intervention and supervision. Still, the sense of loss is not without a healthy critique. We quickly recognise that the children's freedom is a product of parental neglect, born either of incompetence in the Wheeler's case or from distraction in the case of the divorced and abandoned Joyce Byers. Um, mm. So I think it is good to remember that. But I think what's interesting is that when they do encounter evil, even within that and not not that I would say that it's a good thing for children to encounter a literal monster in the woods um but that I think as viewers it speaks to a yearning within ourselves to feel like there's a tangible battle to be won or a real encounter and even even if it's a case that we're encountering something evil or bad but a reminder that the supernatural is real and that Mm we it is something that we can encounter and you know in the case of stranger things it's a negative thing it's an evil thing but that from a catholic point of view we can know that it it is both it is both there is the flip side there is the evil there is the demonic but that you know that sense that real life can still happen to you (laughs) um and that yeah like you said that there's this kind of paradox where in order to encounter mystery and the intangible and the the numinous and and the the things that are beyond our kind of tactile world that we actually need tactile things in order to do that um like for catholics we would say about the sort of the bells and smells as we say or you know the (laughs) the the reality of the transubstantiation or the reality of the incarnation that all of these things come to us through things that are real and so this this move that we've had that I think really answers the question of why we are struggling and with nostalgia at the moment is this kind of massive shift to the digital space that we just don't know how to deal with yet. And that it's not surprising that like we could have existed as, as human creatures for so many thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. And then within the last 30 years, the, the internet arrived and changed so much of how we interact with the world. Yeah, and I, I think we see even in season three that the ball to a certain extent is is seen as like a parallel to mm-hmm. that of the sort of like the everything now mentality um, of sort of uh, a place to be um, in which kind of like you can create yourself as a, as a, a kind of perfected vision of yourself. And uh, yeah, 
and that's that a... and that it also feeds into our nostalgia i know in the last episode of the podcast i recommended bo burnham's comedy special inside which again bo burnham is a, is a comedian who talks a lot about how by the fact that we sort of perform our lives online we're sort of performing them in order to be nostalgic at looking back at them that like the reason to experience something is so that not only can other people look at it but you can look back at it and say oh i i did that then you know rather Mm. than to actually experience it at the time Um, yeah that, that even your own reality is sort of being seen through the framework of of an unreality that you are anticipating that is greater than what is right in front of you which is a uh, I don't know just very <laughs> toxic and, and a sad way to view the world really um, yeah but I think you're really right to say that the the mall or the shopping mall as the sort of internet equivalent is actually quite interesting and 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 yeah maybe I even I hadn't really thought about it that way but that idea of a space where you come to meet people and you're you've got advertisement and commercialism thrown in your face at all times yeah that that it's like that's what the like that's the medium through which you're um through which you're interacting is through kind of i guess consumerism to a large extent um and and people trying to sell you things you know but you're just gonna you're really there to hang out yeah but the only way to hang out is to be in this space where it's just everybody wants to like you to buy things. <laughs> and again, um, I'm going to have one last pop music reference, which is any of the listeners who, like me, are fans of Taylor Swift will be kind of screaming a lyric from her most recent album in your head, which is she has a line which is like, we were like the mole before the Internet. It was the one place to be. And I grew up in a relatively small Irish, I'm putting city in inverted commas, it was, it was a town. And so there was a mall and I did hang out at it, but I don't think I have any of the like huge swelling nostalgia about, about the mall. I, like I remember when I was 12 going to the mall and that being a thing and getting your smoothie and with your, you know, five euro that you've been given and how this was like a real sense of freedom. But then it loses its charm very quickly and that it's the same experience you know very quickly you realize that it's there's really nothing deeper to be pre to be kind of interacted with than that the surface stuff that's available i i think it runs into in the show it runs into that kind of constant battle between the commercialization and the realization that the commercialization is a bad thing so i think you pointed Mm. out to me that they they collaborated with 75 different brands in order to promote that season of the show yeah and to the extent where they kind of like convinced coke to bring out new coke again which was like a flop at the time so i'm not sure how so it was it work, wasn't but... it like a new recipe for coca-cola yeah it but... was it was a ver- yeah like it was a version of new, like so i think in the 80s they brought out a thing called new coke which was like a new recipe that was meant to be even better but then no one liked it <laughs> um and so they yeah so they brought out new coke again and then there's like things like loads of the there's a lot of product placement in the show and a lot of those products you know soar during the time that the show is out and then kind of dip again like mm-hmm. kellogg's egos which i think are a, a kind of a waffle that Eleven loves. Oh yeah, kind of like, like I've I've only really spent one occasion in the United States, and I was thrilled that the place that I was staying, the Airbnb, had Eggo waffles, and I was like, I get to try Eggo waffles, and like, 
the idea that that would be like a highlight of my trip to America where I was in a sort of beautiful landscape in upstate New York for a wedding that like that would be the thing that I'm focused on that I get to try this American corporate brand of waffles because I saw it on a TV show um, yeah. they were tasty I will say <laughs> oh my god because they kind of do make out in the show that they're not that great it's sort yeah. of like Eleven's really into them and they're kind of like, but there is other food also. Yeah. <laughs> While the third season really centers on the mall, the other part of it is that there's a lot of protests about the mall because it totally hollows out this, the town. It's destroyed the downtown and kind of Joyce's shop is totally empty and like that's a kind of an underlying plot point that's going going on amidst all of the the supernatural chaos <laughs> we can see that like a, a, an analogous version of that almost in netflix streaming and um mm. you know amazon's kind of hold on the market for like selling products and stuff like that in terms of kind of just usurping all of the focus yeah. yeah, I think it's a really interesting place for creative people at the moment in that you sort of have to compromise on the fact that the thing that you're, the medium in which you're telling your story through is the thing that you're critiquing at the same time. I think it's the same yes. It's the same for Bo Burnham's comedy special, which is raising the the alert about the, the problems of living your life online and yet you're streaming it on Netflix and he openly yeah, admits that's... that you're streaming it on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, and, and the same with Stranger Things, that like that sense of lack of community of like, of of having a, a central reference point for TV and like no no you have to sign up for this this company and and uh, and abide by what this company does in or in order to access this you know um, yeah. and I I think that's really interesting of that balance of of the different ways in which modernity is impacting us and I think the different ways that Stranger Things actually encounters evil is kind of telling in that way that it isn't just one form of evil it's not just one set of 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 things and i think again that also goes back to tying into the sort of fairy tale aspect and there was a really excellent article by alexi Sargent where he talks about this and he says the monsters of stranger things remain mysterious enough that we don't know what motivates them animal hunger and instinct or some rational but alien agenda we cannot grasp but allegorically the monsters have a clear role they're orphan eaters every supernatural evil on the show has its root in the abuse and abandonment of children that trauma no sin festers and spreads to imperil everything wholesome. The ethics of the show are clearest on this point. Other patterns appear in its moral universe. Lies, however well-intentioned, always sow chaos. Generosity, however foolhardy, always has its reward. But the deepest theme is that parental wrongs are never without ramifications. A recurring image in both seasons is that of, of the child characters speeding around on their bicycles, gliding on the dark wooded roads lit only by their bike headlights. This free-range childhood is both a throwback idle and the source of danger and tension we know that what might be lurking in those woods but it's not constant supervision that the children need helicopter parenting won't save hawkins hopper tries something like that with 11 and it proves stifling what the children need are adults who see them as individuals learning to navigate a morally fraught world and provide them with care attention and good examples adults who build homes that are sanctuaries from darkness and places where children can equip themselves to go out and confront them monsters 
I think that's what's so satisfying about watching it is that sense of them against the world, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's them against the world in all kinds of ways, whether it's the sort of bureaucratic slowness or the corporate greed or the nefariousness of government ambitions or or an, an evil that you cannot understand or grasp that comes at you directly from another world, you know, that that within it, that core kind of set of virtues is is at the heart of it. And it, it like it goes to that chest and quote that everyone mangles and, and, and abbreviates, but that fairy tales don't tell you that uh, that dragons exist. They tell you that they can be defeated. Well, I think that in a, in a roundabout way covers the theme of, I guess, nostalgia, fairy tales, digital existence i don't know <laughs> i guess it's a testament to the show that there's just a lot in it and there's a lot of ways you can kind of look at it it's it's very rich in kind of like thematic resonance to our to our lives <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think i know the season four is coming out next year but i'm, I'm pleased to be to be doing it at this time of year because to me like i said i think it's it's a fun time of the year to watch it I forced Phoebe to watch it and she did enjoy it but it's so funny because I, I <laughs> she she found the kind of gruesome horror elements of it really difficult and, and, and kind of pushing her whereas for me I almost don't even like register that there's like kind of gross gruesome like monster stuff in it I'm just like yeah, yeah but the characters are so fun <laughs> it is like it is it's quite visceral in places and that must be said for anyone who hasn't seen Stranger Things I feel like most people have at this point <laughs> yeah if you're if you're not into kind of like visceral like not so much gory but just like monstery bogey-ish horror yeah the monsters themselves I think it's less about people being injured that's an issue in it it's more that the monsters although themselves... Steve Harrington inevitably by the end has a smashed up face uh, every... once per season <laughs> once per season Steve Harrington gets his nose broken or whatever. Like. Yeah, his face is not happy by the end of his season. <laughs> um, but for the most part, I think, yeah, the gore comes from the design of the monsters themselves. Yes. They're quite sort of like, I guess, pulsating and gross. But I would really recommend it. And if anyone listening enjoys Stranger Things, reach out and let me know. And and I, I'll also say this as a roundup. I like all three seasons. I do think the second one is maybe the the weakest. I think it's the yeah. It's it's slower paced and, and less optimistic as well. More more troubled. Um, and then the third one kind of maybe overcorrects in, into a sort of exuberance and, and referentiality. But to me, I would rather see it go in the direction of that sort of exuberance than than in, into the more cynical version so but I like all three seasons I think they're all great <laughs> and yeah me too I, I have my f fingers crossed that season four will also be great please god yeah. <laughs> um, and thanks so much for for joining me on this Robin I, I knew I wanted to talk to you there's a character in season three called Robin and Robin even shares the kind of same hair tone as her so I guess it was Halloween two years ago that you dressed up as her yeah that was... Yep, I did. I, I went to great efforts to make my Scoops Ahoy costume, which was <laughs> very fun. <laughs> so um, Yeah, every, everything. Like, I just love the world that this, uh, this show inhabits so, it, uh, so much that I want to wear it. <laughs> now that 
I've got slightly longer hair, we could maybe do a double costume of Elle and Max from season three. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so, that <was> so fun. <laughs> um, and I think the characters on that show are, are so fun and heartwarming. And there's always at least one in every season that like a, of a, a kind of grouping or a pairing or a matchup of, of people who get thrown into a situation together that you're just like, every time it cuts back to them, you're like, yes, I can't wait to yeah, see what's happening it's, now. And it, that, I guess for me, that's like what I, like I love 80s cinema and it's for that thing of just like, just the joy of watching it is just like it's it's yeah sometimes you know what's coming but it's like you're just reveling in the way that they do it um and i just think that stranger things nails that that atmosphere and that's that's why it's just so fun <laughs> absolutely and so i guess now that we've told everyone how much we enjoy stranger things i get to ask you what else are you enjoying at the moment um so I was thinking on this, I think I'm going to say actually, and it's thematically a, a little different, it's maybe not as kind of like quite as 80s as some of his other um, pieces, but I was going to say actually Jack Antonoff's um, most recent album, Take the Sauna Set of Saturday Night, um, yeah. which uh, actually deals with some very interesting kind of themes, like he he doesn't personally believe in God, but he's dealing a lot with with the ideas of of having a draw, uh, like he, as he says, what do I, like what do I do with all this faith? He has a, a real draw to to something greater than himself, and he's kind of reckoning with that in the album. Um, mm. And so, great bangers, but also uh, lyrically really rich as well. So yeah, I love I, I love all of the Bleachers albums. It's three now, so three seasons of Stranger Things and three Bleachers <laughs> albums, and I love all of them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I could say that as well. I think what I'll say is I'll actually say another movie, which I think will maybe just offer a little bit of a counterpoint, which is that Phoebe and I watched An American in Paris, which I had seen large set pieces of before. I'd been to a concert, a live, like a live performance of Gene Kelly. Um, so they would screen the, the, the moments from the film, but they would perform the music live. And so I'd seen large sections of it but I hadn't actually seen it the whole way through and it just reminded me it's not my favorite musical um but it just reminds me I was saying this to a friend recently that like I almost feel like especially those 1950s musicals but that golden era of Hollywood in general it almost feels like a different art form to film now <laughs> and I like film now I'm not saying that again as just disparaging like everything new is bad and everything old is good but it just it's so different and again it's very uplifting and an American in Paris ends with a 25 minute essentially ballet performance at the end in which there is no dialogue and the dialogue never comes back in to, to end the film there's wow. essentially a long dream sequence and then yeah. there's about a two minute scene at the end that wraps up the film but there's there's no talking in it and the idea that you would even suggest something like that <laughs> like it would just never um, happen and it's just like a big artistic exercise it's a dream sequence it's got like a lot of art into it because the main character that Gene Kelly is playing is an artist and so it's his imagining of Paris that they're dancing around and um you know it, it, like I said it, it's I, I really enjoy watching those older movies I find it kind of frustrating that it's actually a little difficult to access those movies those don't tend to be on streaming services and they don't like if they're on tv at they're at like 3 p.m in the afternoon or something um yeah. if they're on at all and i think it's kind of a shame i think we could all benefit from 
having more familiarity with that era of, of filmmaking. Absolutely. It's, it's its own whole different language, really, of kind of like cinema that, um, yeah, I think teaches us things about kind of like the human condition in just like different ways. Well worth watching a good old classic. I'm a huge Gene Kelly fan, so that was that was another reason to watch it. Okay, well, I think that's it. I hope everyone is enjoying their autumn and... I am really grateful. We've got some new listeners since we've come back after summer and I'm super grateful for everyone who listens to the podcast and, you know, continue to share it, please. That really helps helps us kind of reach more people. But I'm just really grateful for all of the listeners and, and thanks so much for being here and, and checking in with, with our conversations, whether whether they're on Dante or whether they're on Stranger Things. <laughs> um, and as always, you can sign up to our newsletter, which is, uh, there's a form on my website. If you go to rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast, you can find it there. And we're on Instagram, uh, Risking Enchantment Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at, at Seeking Watson. And is there anything you'd like to shout out, Robin? Um, I do have, I think just Robin Conroy Art is my Instagram if you want to check that out. Um, I'm not very active on it, but it's there. <laughs> and Robin is doing amazing work with the Levin magazine. She's contributing a lot of design elements to it, and it's such a beautiful looking magazine. Um, it's currently digital. I, I think we've got fingers crossed that maybe that will change in the future, that we might be able to get our, our hands on it, which is, it is a great thing because... Not only are the articles in it really, really great, but the the design, and I think design is so important to luring people into into reading something. So um, yeah, Robin does great work for that. So that's Levin Thank Magazine, you. which you can also find on, on Instagram and on Twitter. And yeah, I think that's it. And until next time, thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.